Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and uh, turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 4 this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. As we address uh, this chapter uh, that gets into some proverbial wisdom, where this uh, convener of the assembly, this teacher of the people, uh, communicates simple truths in the midst of his search for satisfaction. He was looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places, searching and seeking. And as we've sung this morning, he would only find that satisfaction in God alone. Augustine once said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in Him. That's exactly what the writer of Ecclesiastes is communicating to us in various personas and perspectives as he moves through the reality of life under the sun and the most important questions pertaining to that life. Who am I and where am I going? What is this all about? And where can I find the satisfaction and the fulfillment that my, my soul longs for? Now, it's important to understand in our study, before we look to chapter 4, that the writer takes on different perspectives throughout the context of his writing. As he takes on the first perspective in chapter 4, it's, it's rather cynical and, and pessimistic in nature, where he looks at oppression and he says, everywhere I turn, there's an endless stream of oppression and, and abuse, this, this cycle that is never-ending. And, and then he approaches this from the standpoint of, of his toil and his labor and his skill, just trying to find that satisfaction. And then as he winds out the chapter, he gives us the proverbial wisdom, some of the things that he's learned in life. And some of the things that he learns are very good and positive lessons. And some of them, while good and positive, kind of cut him to the quick. And they're hard lessons to learn. But he's sharing his heart with us. He's He's, he's reflecting some of his inner struggles as he searches for satisfaction, as he debates within his heart and mind about the realities of life, and, and as he's surprised as he looks at life under the sun outside of God and finds such grave and great disappointment. We're reminded by Ian Provan in his uh, NIV application commentary, the whole book of Ecclesiastes, as we will see, shifts, contains shifts in perspectives as human existence is considered from different points of view, with the aim of commending certain points of view over other points of view. And he deals with a particularly pertinent issue today that reflects on what we spoke of last week, and that is oppression and social justice. So he continues that theme a little bit and looks at it from various perspectives, and I believe that there is an amazing amount of wisdom in the context of chapter 4 that can be gleaned, but there are some hard lessons that we all need to learn. Some of these lessons I know well, and some of them I'm still trying to learn, and I'm still trying to grab this sense of completeness and rest and satisfaction in Christ alone. And if you've arrived there, which you probably haven't, But maybe just for now, as you've arrived there, we must put all of that into practice the next time. When something happens that is outside of the realm of what we 
would perceive good, when we're searching and crying out and there's silence from the throne, when we're struggling with our own sense or sort of oppression and wondering where the answers might come. What a great chapter this morning that goes from negative to positive to negative, but teaches us so much reality about this earthly life and existence I don't know about you, at the end of the chapter, it gives me a longing for something more, exactly what the writer of Ecclesiastes was longing for. Look at verse 1. And again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Better that both he who has not yet been born has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. So also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person has no other, either son or brother, yet that there is no end to all of his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, from whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business." Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth and an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all of the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come after or come later will not rejoice in him. Surely also this is vanity and striving after the wind. Father, I pray that you would bless us as we jump into this text, particularly the sections that are so difficult to understand and and grasp in its general approach to wisdom. But I pray that you would bring to memory all of the things that we have studied thus far and, of course, those critical verses in chapter 12 that frame the whole context of the book of Ecclesiastes, that you'd allow us to learn and to gain from the labors of this wise man who was blessed more abundantly than what we all have or know, was wrestling with the reality of some of life's greatest questions. Who am I and where am I going? And as he pursues this life under the sun, he inevitably finds true and lasting satisfaction. And I pray that no matter what the case or situation of those gathered in your house this morning might be, 
they too can find that rest and satisfaction in Christ alone. Finding comfort in the reality that the day that is to come, He will set the crooked straight and make right all of the wrongs of life under the sun. But while we're here and while we wrestle, teach us some of the important lessons that He expounds and shares with those who have gathered to hear His wisdom. May we hear. May we be doers of the Word, not hearers only. And may we find that rest that seems so elusive to so many. And may that rest be in Christ alone, the sovereign God who sits on the throne knowing the end from the beginning, who teaches us in a whisper, enjoy the blessings of the day. Take satisfaction and be still. May that be the reality of all of our lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a really interesting age, and I wonder if some of the restlessness of our culture and society that I've seen coming over the course of my lifetime and probably more than two generations, I think it started with the boomers and and went on to the Gen Xers and, and then, of course, to the millennials. This pursuit of life under the sun, what's it all about and what makes it happen? But there is some oppression that is taking place in our culture today that can be characterized in only negative terms. There is an attempt by the powers that be, and that is the social elite, the media, uh, large institutions, I believe, that uh, campuses across the country and, in fact, across the globe, and of, and of course, political pundits and politicians themselves who have hammered home, at least in the last four years, maybe, maybe three specifically, uh, a tale of alienation, of turning people against each other in the name of social justice. And if you've been paying any attention, you can see how that's happening. They're making some people oppressors and other people oppressed, and and they're driving this grand wedge into the culture and society. And I want you to know that there's only some people that win that wedge fight, and that's the people who are in power, who continue to oppress. But but if they can alienate people from each other, even the COVID lockdowns had dire consequences for the culture at large for the young people who are experiencing anxiety and depression like they've never experienced before. All of this is part of a grand plan that goes all the way to the one who who wars against our soul, Satan himself, to deprive us of what matters most and to convince us that somehow there's hope in something, but the hope that is portrayed to us as the coalesce comes to conclude is like chasing after the wind. Not only do they alienate us and make us all enemies, there's this isolation that takes place where no longer do we speak to each other in civil tones, and there's all, often, and, and I would say all, always in some cases, this great divide in isolation where even in a country we're never going to see things the same anymore. Stop listening to those oppressors. Stop listening to that message and and listen to the words in the heart of the Kohelet as he explains in Ecclesiastes the things that matter most. And of course, in light of this alienation and isolation, 
We have never lived in more of a time of loneliness than today. And with the advent of social media, some of you think you have thousands of friends, and if that be the case, why are you so lonely? Why do you feel so alone in this great big world? Why do you feel nobody gets you and and understands you? When we are divided, when we are isolated, we no longer cease to live as God has created us to live, and that is relationally with each other. And a sense of community, this commonness of life under the sun, and the most important commonness of the answers to the biggest questions in life. In essence, it would be my opinion and those of researchers today that the anxiety and depression being experienced in young children and teenagers today is a direct result of being connected in more ways than you can even imagine, yet in the middle of a crowd, feeling like they're in this all alone. Nobody is there for me. That is the common condition of a man, of a woman, of an individual, regardless of lifestyle or stage, who experiences the alienation and isolation that I believe has been exponential in the last few years, and I believe will have dire consequences for the church in the next 10 to 20 years. I don't believe we've even begun to scratch the surface of the implications of the alienation and isolation of our culture today or the loneliness that people experience under the sun. And somehow, as we live in that culture and are bombarded by by that message time and again, day in and day out, we need to take advantage of what the Koheleth, the writer of Ecclesiastes, is seeking to communicate to us We need to see the bad, and we need to see the good, and we need to negotiate life based on the lessons that He shares with us. One of the lessons begins in the first verse of chapter 4 again. I turned my attention again and saw the oppressions. They seem to be endless oppressions that are done under the sun. Everywhere I looked, it appeared that people were being oppressed. They were being taken advantage of. They were being used and abused and stolen from and robbed of things, etc., and etc. He begins this, this, this whole reality in verse 16 of chapter 3, flipping back there, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Whether it's in a court of law, the political arena, the educational uh, opportunities and, and universities, there is oppression. It is everywhere. There's nothing that we can do about it. And when God is not a part of your life, there is no answer for social justice. There is no answer for this thing called oppression. There is no answer for equality. There is no answer for the problems under the sun. In fact, I suggest that from Genesis chapter 3, there were never any answers under the sun. You get what you pay for because of sin, and he'll explain that to us. There is oppression. Taken to its nth degree, it is an ugly 
world in which we live. So even the Christian community has been taken captive by this notion of social justice. Even the Christian community has taken, been taken captive by this notion that somehow we can achieve social justice under the sun through political and educational means outside of God, and it is fool's gold. And I will say this clearly. There are some fools writing Christian books about social justice today who do not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to be free? Jesus says, I will give you freedom indeed, but it is only found in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Laws will not change it. Justice will never prevail over the evil in people's hearts. We are left to live a life of existence in this world of oppression, but there's a reason for that. And the reason is simple. And the Koheleth is coming to this realization gradually through the context of the book. There is nothing under the sun that satisfies my soul. Good. That's the first step in finding what truly does. And he says that in the end of the book, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. I will remind you again that biblical Christianity and ideological social justice are incompatible worldviews. They're diametrically opposed on matters of epistemology. How do we define truth? How is truth determined? What is the basis of truth? We believe in true truth, as Francis Schaeffer once called it, and that is the truth that comes from the pages of the book. It is absolute. It crosses all boundaries. It is timeless in nature. Social justice today twists the truth and makes proclamations that don't even resemble anything that is true. Not only is biblical Christianity and ideological social justice incompatible when it comes to epistemology and truth, but about human nature and identity. Let's be perfectly clear. had this conversation just before the message. In the beginning, God created them male and female in His image for His glory. You can spin that any way you want to, and you can come to some awakening. You can get so woke that you miss the mirror in front of you. You can call yourself anything that you want. But in the end of the day, there is only one person that determines who you are, and that's God who's designed you and created you and knows you, male and female, created in His image for His glory. You're not pliable. You don't get to make these choices. There is an author of life. It is the God, the sovereign God of the universe, and you can tell yourself all kinds of lies, but it doesn't change true truth. Human nature is sinful and redeemable through the blood of Jesus Christ, and your identity is fixed. Biblical Christianity and ideological social justice are incompatible when it comes to morality. And if you haven't come to that conclusion, I can't help you. This is as plain as the nose on your face. Something can't be right and wrong at the same time. Something can't be black and white at the same time. There is a morality that is fixed 
and the context of life from the beginning, the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, and the sanctity of personal responsibility, and that is non-negotiable. It is built in to the telos of creation, and there is a morality that transcends all times and all creeds and all culture and every other authority. And as the Koalath is wrestling with trying to figure that out, he is slowly coming to the conclusion that there must be something more than this, and he gets to the right place eventually. But it gives us a, a window into what's going on in his heart and in his mind. Now, I don't want a window into your mind. I, I just assume not know what's going on there. Maybe I'd be disappointed that nothing is. I, I don't know. But here's a guy who had everything, including a wisdom that came from God. And he still screwed it up because of his sinfulness. He still missed the boat, but he eventually gets there. And I I hold out hope for all of us that eventually we'll get there. Sometimes we find it, and it's challenged, and we find it in a deeper way, and it's challenged, and that's what spiritual growth and life is really all about. But stop buying into this woke culture because ideological social justice and biblical Christianity are an antithesis. They're against each other. They both can't be right. But true truth is always Right. So as the Kohelet turns his attention yet again to the matter of wickedness and to the matter of justice, we find ourselves in the text and in the context once again addressing that. Again, I saw, verse 1, all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Wherever I turned, it seems like there was no end to the oppression. It was pervasive. It seemed like every area of culture, there was a, a pervasive oppression and there was no evidence that he could see under the sun of any sense of justice. No matter where he looked, all he saw was oppression. He could no longer see justice. But he was looking in all of the wrong places. And this is the problem with our life and existence and the ideological social justice and the woke movement today. Justice cannot be found under the sun. But his conclusion as the cynic and the pessimist is, there is no such thing as justice. And then a glimmer of hope, if you just go back to to chapter 3 quickly, he says in verse 17, and I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. I'm trying to hold on to the fact that, that someday there's going to be justice. I just can't see it today. I would join him to a certain degree in that opinion as I look at my world today. There's oppression everywhere and no sense of justice. And behold, he says, the tears of the oppressed, their grief, the weight of the affliction that they experience, they experience under this alienation and isolation that we talked about earlier. And there was no one to comfort those who were oppressed. There was no one who could offer help Seemingly no one who could protect them from, from the abuse and etc. Seemingly there was no answer to those who were experiencing life and being taken advantage of in ways 
that you can't even imagine. And on the other side, on the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. They would never rise to the stature to be able to stand up against their oppressors because they were powerless in the process. They were powerless to do anything about it. They were powerless to stop it because they had no power. That's what comes from alienation and isolation. You have no voice. You have no say. You have no power. Just take it like a man, so to speak. What a depressing notion that is, especially in the consolidation of power in our culture, particularly the Western civilization of which we are a part. And no matter what could be done, there was nobody to take the side of the oppressors. So in a pessimistic, cynical kind of way, the writer says, so I thought the dead who had our who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. At least they're dead and don't have to deal with this anymore. I often think about that when it comes to my grandparents and those who have passed on. How would they have negotiated this world? They lived in such a different world. What a terrible place we live in. It's probably better that they, they're not alive to see it. What a cynical cynical approach to life. But he's saying, listen, at least they have some relief because there's no relief under the sun but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Even better, it's a person who's never been born. That's the only way to escape the trouble and the horror of oppression. Now, I believe that he's come to a right and proper conclusion because we are all born in sin and separated from God. There's an evil that will always pervade our culture, and there is no escape to oppression under the sun. It is reality in one way or another. We will all face it in one way or another. That's just the way this broken world exists. But in his cynicism, he said, those who have already died are better off and maybe even more so, and he'll say it a couple of other times in, in the rest of the book, those who haven't been born and, and aren't born and won't be born, they're probably better off than the rest of us. I notice that in the context, though, as he, as he speaks, he clearly sees the people in mind as being eternal beings. Did you notice that? How can you speak of a person who's not yet born? See, this wisdom still nags him with this reality that, that there's a plan and there's a, there's a God, and, and, and our life does matter. And as he wrestles through all of this, he is just saying, I'm, I'm glad for those who have passed on who no longer have to live in this kind of world, and, and maybe it'd be better for those who haven't yet been born, i.e., I, recognizing their individuality and personhood And yet concluding, maybe it's better that you're never born into this oppression. You can, you can just kind of feel the weight that he is carrying. Verse 4, then I saw all the toil and all skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. And this is also vanity and a striving after 
the wind. And now he turns his attention just a little bit, but I still think he's dealing within the context of oppression and the text. But he's giving us a a reason why mankind under the sun does much of what they do in, in all of their toil and even in all of their skill, whether that be vocational or otherwise. <coughs> their skill and work comes from man's envy of his neighbor. I got a raw deal. I, I didn't get what I deserved. Why don't I have what they have? Why can't I have what they have? Life is so unfair. Social justice, that's not an answer. Life is always going to be unfair. There will always be people who have more than other people. And there will always be people who have less than other people. And that's just a reality under the sun. So what he does is he stops speaking of the, the social justice out there in the community at large, and he looks at the individual, and he comes to the conclusion that for the individual who wants a little bit more, for the individual who feels like they didn't get their fair share, uh, for the individual who wants their cut, for the individual who wants what somebody else wants, the motive for all of that, it's not justice. The motive for all of that is envy, rivalry, wanting what somebody else has. Now, I know none of us struggle from that. Every day you struggle from that. Every day we have these things in our minds and (coughs) things in our heart where We ask ourselves like the psalm writer, why do the heathen rage? What's the deal with that, God? These people, who these these private limousine liberals who are in charge of everything and and, and making all of it, why do they get to say, how come I can't have a little bit of what they have? This just doesn't work. And we do it at a micro level as well, looking at our neighbor or even worse, on social media and say, well, why can't we have that life? First of all, they don't have that life, social media. But envy, envy is a part of our sinful makeup as human beings, feeling somehow we missed out and we deserve a little bit more. And remember, as he is writing and working this out in his mind, this is a man who had more than all that was before him in Jerusalem. And he's saying, let me tell you what my motive was. (laughs) I wanted more than anybody else had. He's admitting to us that envy is a part of fallen humanity. This is something that we're all going to wrestle with. It's the source of often all of our toil. I want to work a little bit harder not for this sense of satisfaction at the end of the day and a good night's rest. I want to work a little harder because I want what they want. And I'm going to invest my life in doing everything that I can, even to, to the place of, of being a workaholic, so, so that we can have all of those nice and fine things in life. And he's saying that comes from a source of envy of your neighbor, and it's not a good place. 
because in all of this envy that drives you for more and for more and for more, <coughs> in the end of the day, it's vanity and striving after the wind. The more you get, the more you want, and your soul is never satisfied. It's the nature of humanity and life under the sun, apart from God. It's like chasing after the wind. How do you know when you've caught it? You never do. So what does he conclude here in the text? Maybe from verse 4, a question for all of us might be, why are you doing what you're doing? What's your motive in life? I want to remind you of what he said a couple chapters ago. In essence, not his words, but mine, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. I'm okay. I'm happy with what I have. God is good. Here's how he says it in the next couple of verses. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. The foolish sluggard spoken of in the book of Proverbs and other places is one who looks at all of the oppression and the injustice of the world, never believes he's going to get a fair shake and just sits at home whining about the condition of his life and complaining about what he doesn't have. And he doesn't go out and do anything. He just folds his hands and destroys himself. Funny thing. In the name of social justice, we make that easy for people today. You don't have to work. You don't have to do anything. The government is your safety net. Just trust us. But do you understand the great lie in all that? If you're trusting them, you are not trusting your Creator. The consequences are dire. There are a series of books out called One Helping Hurts. It is not a just thing, and it is not a good thing when we rob individuals of their productivity to get out there and be industrious. In essence, it destroys their soul, and that's what Solomon is saying. You can't just do nothing and whine about your situation and your oppression. Because in essence, it's, it's like a cannibalism. It's going to eat you alive, and it, it'll cause your own destruction. So what is the other answer? Well, envy, I'm going to go out there and work my whole life and get more and more and more and more, even though I'm not satisfied with it. So Solomon says, well, let me ask. Let me speak to that as well. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. The answer is not to sit and do nothing. No one can live that way. It is unhealthy. But the answer isn't to pursue and become and have more than all that we before you in Jerusalem. He said there's a happy medium somewhere where you must be content with your life. And better is one handful with quietness and peace 
than striving for more and getting that more and having both hands full, but having to work hard to maintain that. He says, somehow, somewhere, there's got to be a place where enough is enough, that there's some satisfaction, there's some, there's some joy, there's something that, that matters. There's two extremes that he deals with in response to envy. The one is idle laziness. Well, I'll never have what they have, so whatever. I'm not going to work hard for it. That epitomizes much of our culture today. But he warns against the other extreme as well. Manic busyness where we're always going, 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 and both hands are full. At the end of the day, it's meaningless. It's like chasing after the wind. Because the more you have, the more you have to take care of, and the more you have to maintain. And he's saying, surely there's got to be a place where we can just be content, where my soul is satisfied, and he's learning it's not under this sun. G.K. Chesterton said, there's two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more, and the other is to desire less and less. Well, that's a good quote. <laughs> Chasing after two hands full, being satisfied with one hand full. Yeah, but you don't understand, Pastor. My handful is not as much as theirs. Verse 4, the envy of your neighbor under the sun. If God is good, And he's good all the time, as Paul learned. He is good when I abound. And he's good when I'm in need. Because one handful with peace and quietness is a good thing. How many of you have found that yet? (laughs) Welcome to life under the sun. It's hard to find it. It's a challenge. And then he says, and again, verse 8, I saw the vanity under the sun. And all of this, there was a vanity to it. Jeremiah Burroughs, a Puritan writer, way, way, way back. I've read this book. It's a hard read. The English is Old English. The book is called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, makes this astute observation in a time in which there wasn't plenty like the days in which we live. The Christian has another way to contentment. He can bring his desires down to his possessions. He can bring his desires down and just take satisfaction in what he has and give up this pursuit of what he doesn't have and will never achieve because there's oppression under the sun. In essence, he is bringing down to this moral proximity and the individual reality that all of us must war against idle laziness and manic busyness. And I believe that the manic busyness can be applied to the local church. Sometimes we are so busy doing things and activities and scheduling that we have no time to be still and know that He is God. There's always going to be something that needs to be done. Always, always, always. Moral proximity teaches us that although there is much to be done, I can't do it all. 
but moral proximity teaches us what I must do is to engage in my world based on the people that God allows to cross my path and the people closest to me. The real answer to social justice is you and I doing what God's called us to do, living holy, godly lives among the people that we're closest to, our families and our friends and our small circles of influence. Will there always be something else to do? Always, always, always. We have to war against idle laziness and manic busyness and make the most of every opportunity that God gives us, addressing the oppression under the earth, and David Gibson suggests this is how we do it. If you can live in this world in such a way that the person or people beside you, your friend, your spouse, your children, your brother, your sister, the people that God has put in your path, when those people are your waking concern and your dominant focus, then you'll find happiness. What is the answer to oppression? Investing in the lives of the people closest to you. Isn't that funny? We're chasing so hard after the wind that we run right past the people closest to us, thinking that somehow we're gaining the whole world. Kohala says that's false gold. It's empty promises. It's meaningless. God has given us our life. He has given us our relationships. He has put people into our lives, and that is our circle of influence. And in that moral proximity, we must guard against idle laziness, and we must guard against manic busyness, but we must invest in the lives of other people, serving them for the glory of God, verse 8. Without those other people, one person who has no other, either son or brother, that there's no end to his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, from whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. What is he saying? Within the context, loneliness is a terrible, terrible thing. Here's a person pursuing life under the sun, making the most of every opportunity, never yet satisfied, always two hands full, juggling the realities of life, never satisfied with what they have, and never asking the question, what am I doing? Why why am I doing this? What is the purpose of all of this? He said, this is vanity and an unhappy business. Did you ever ask yourself that? What am I doing? Why am I doing this? This, Do you ever feel like you're in a rat race? And the demands are so great that you can never achieve or accomplish them. I suspect there's a little bit of that in all of us. If there's not in you, we'll have a talk about idle laziness. God, who am I? 
where am I going? What do you want from me? I suspect he says, look around. I put you in time and place where you are for a reason. There's always stuff to be done, but these are the people in front of you. Don't miss those opportunities. Don't be afraid to ask yourself the question, why am I here and how can I serve them? How can I help them? What can I do to make a difference in their life? For the true answer to social justice is how we treat people. It's how you and I treat the people in our circles. What we focus on, the things that matter most. Beginning in verse 9, and we'll reflect upon this next week, there's a series of proverbial statements in which he begins to stress the importance of community. I want to finish with this. God has not created you or I to do life on our own. God created us in His image, male and female, to enter into a vertical relationship with Him and horizontal relationships with other people. Every single one of us are designed for relationship. You cannot do this alone. You cannot navigate life alone. You must find a place and appreciation for your community. But this is where I believe it matters most, and this is my dire concern for the church in the coming decades. You can sit amongst hundreds of people on a Sunday morning and still be all alone, sometimes because you won't let anyone in. You don't trust them. Sometimes because you don't do the hard work of relationship. And sometimes because we convince ourselves that we don't need community. I'm here to tell you, you do. And Solomon has just told us in verse 8 what a lonely existence when there's no one there for me. Nobody. And take you back and remind you my commendation of this congregation, of being there for people in hurt and in crisis. That's what a community is all about. There's this temptation in our culture that comes from the alienation and isolation and loneliness that is driven from the top down. But even from the wounds in our own soul, build walls and let nobody in. You cannot live that way, Solomon said. You cannot live that way. You are designed for community. You say, well, what is that, Pastor Jim? Come back next week. We'll talk about it. Read the rest of this chapter when you go home. We're made to do this together in moral proximity. We not, might not like the prickly people that God put us together with, but there are, there are people. We got to work this out somehow because it's It's for your good, and it's for my good, and it's for their good, and it's for God's glory. You want to do something about oppression? Develop a sense of community. You are here for purpose, and that purpose is to glorify God.
man, some challenging stuff here. I experienced a weight of conviction this week. I'm just a little self-disclosure. Because I can be given to manic busyness. So much to do. No one else can do this. I have to do this. Sometimes God rebukes you. Who do you think you are? Who, who do you think you are? Some of you are driven to idle laziness. And you guys like me saying, what are you doing? But all of us must find a place of contentment and understand, who am I and where am I going? And you cannot find that under the sun. But the truth will set you free, and you shall be free indeed. And that truth is the Son of our Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ. Otherwise, life doesn't make sense. Makes sense, Father, of our hurts. Make sense of our troubles. Teach us in oppression. Teach us in turmoil. Show us that we can't go it alone. Remind us that we're prone to envy. And give us this unceasing desire. And the pursuit of the question, there must be something more. And teach us to find our rest in you. Easy to say. May we find it in Christ alone, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and join us? We're going to close our.